Richard Williams of Melody Maker once said this about Nico. Nico frightens me, yet somehow draws me closer to drink from her fountain of desolation and alien fantasy. I don't think she's at all aware of the effect she has. Well, that may have been true, but for my guest today on the program, he was very well aware of the effect Nico had on him. And that effect not only yielded a career of musical intensity, it's now yielded a double album in her honor. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Rivers will be flowing, so why not let that flow? People were made for showing, so why not let that show? Show a little laughter, show a little smile, because we music of my guest today on the program, Chris Connolly. Let me tell you a little bit about Chris Connolly. The Scottish-born Chris Connolly got his start with the electronic outfit Finitribe. Championed by John Peel, the inventive band did a long and harrowing UK tour in 88, and so arduous that tour was, it led to the shedding of three members, including Connolly, who left for the U.S. and landed in Chicago where he fell in with the revolting Cox and Ministry. Once Connolly hit the States, he really immersed himself in the Wax Tracks-powered industrial scene. Over the course of his career, Connolly has been affiliated with Pigface, Ministry, the revolting Cox, D. Warzaw, Acid Horse, KMFDM, the Joy Thieves, PTP, and the Damage Manual. And my friends, that's a partial list. This guy just doesn't stop doing stuff. Speaking of doing stuff, his almost 30-album-long solo discography is a knockout, including albums like Whiplash Boy Child, Shipwreck, and Graveyard Sex. His newest effort, Eulogy to Krista, is a moving, stirring, and deeply satisfying homage to Nico. Comprised of covers and original compositions, the 24-track Eulogy to Krista is a heartfelt tribute to a fascinating artist. Connolly is a pretty fascinating artist himself, and this is a great chat. So here's me and Chris Connolly having a conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast.
I've been pretty busy. I just got, uh, I was on the road with the, my old band, the Revolting Cox, for the very last time. And we finished in Denver last Sunday. And, uh, you know, now I'm just doing promo for the new album and rehearsing some of the songs for a gig. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm busy along with just other life things that happen. Yeah. Are you are you a little bit bummed that the revolting cocks have come to an end or does it feel feel OK? Oh, no, it was my idea. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not really big into nostalgia at all. And uh, it was definitely when we did it, we did it for fun. And uh, now it's, you know, and we had a good time for these few shows we played, but I don't want to go back anymore and do it. It's it's like doing these songs is so boring. <laughs> yeah. The audiences are great and everything like that. But you know, we're playing to a um we're playing to a sequence, you know. So so much of that time on stage is counting like okay, time count to 16, count to eight, count to four, and then count to 16 again. It just it's you know it's there's no room for there's no wiggle room. Um and uh yeah i'm totally done with it <laughs> that kind of on stage precision is that does that take the spontaneity out of what you'd rather do yeah it does i mean it's you can get you you get it from other places i mean you know like i said the crowds were really good but at at this time in my life it's 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 time to bring it it felt like a parody uh what we were doing and that's part of the the fun of the revolting cocks or was fun of the revolting cocks it was a parody and now that parody is it's not going to be funny next year <laughs> yeah so it's and, time to put it to bed and it feels like the band has nothing more to say yeah i mean we're doing songs that are like honestly like 37 years old yeah um you know so boy it would be like if it's 1918, we're playing Glenn Miller music or something like that. <laughs> it's well, we've done it. <laughs> I mean, but so much of like what fans love about the music that they love is baked into nostalgia, right? Like people yeah. remember, like, oh, because I remember like I was in college, I was at university when I got all those revolting Cox records. And so it's almost transportive. So the the audience wants the nostalgia, but the performer probably doesn't. No, the performer wants money. <laughs> That's why, I mean, unless you're really stuck in a lot groove of loving what you did when you were 21, then, uh, you know, um, there's a certain amount of it that is hanging out with your friends for sure. I mean, uh, the only two original members in this lineup was me and Paul Barker. And he's like my brother. I mean, you know, we love hanging out and it's fun to travel with him. And we it's it's always uh, lighthearted and humorous. But, you know, we we both have other things going on. We both have other a lot of other musical projects we're doing uh, that are definitely forward looking. And so to take this quantum leap backwards is is uh, hard. Yeah. Well, I hope financially it was it was rewarding. Yeah, it's fine. It was good. good. Okay. Uh, yeah got a lot of reading done i got a lot of flying done so <laughs> there you go yeah um you've always i mean i followed your career from the very beginning and you've always been someone who in my, at least my perception of you has always been 
that you're very prolific and you're almost tirelessly so. Um, are you somebody who operates better when you're sort of maxed out with things you have to do? No, not at all. And I mean, you know, the the impression that people get is that I'm prolific, but there, and I am prolific, but it's uh, the timeline is something that I control myself. It, it used to be that I would take on a lot of projects and do it. And then I found as I was getting older and I have a family and everything like that, it was, I had to not put the brakes on, but have to delegate and keep things in perspective with what I can reasonably do i don't want to do stuff just to do stuff and that's how i used to be um i'd rather do something with someone i like or do something by myself and make it really good um and also you know doing records for me or collaborating with people it happens quite fast it doesn't take an awful lot of my time Doing my own projects, uh, more of a labor of love. Um, so, yeah, I am not happy to be under pressure. And I've kind of made it that way. I have my own little record company and I don't have to answer to anyone. And I don't have any expectations of myself either uh, or of the people who buy my records. Just I do them. And uh, if I am not under pressure, then I am very creative. Yeah. It seems like an enviable position to be in. I am very lucky. I'm very lucky. I I find it easy to write and I love to write. And um uh I I you know I, at very least I do an album per year and uh I don't ever feel that there is I mean I always feel inspired, always, um, every single day. I don't I don't have this on we. I work pretty hard. I have a day job. And because of that, it means that the time I have that's free is really quality time. And um, my mind goes into overdrive and I start thinking of things. But it doesn't get in the way, you know. I don't agonize over it. <laughs> I was right. like, if it's a good idea, it's going to happen. And if it's not a great idea, then you'll forget about it. So I'm pretty relaxed about it. Are you still teaching um, at the School of Rock? No, I actually stopped that because I was doing it. I'm still a teacher, but uh, I, I stopped doing that because it was uh, at the weekends and I was I had abs. I was exhausted. I had no time really to do anything uh, much outside of working six days a week. It was it wasn't fair on me or my body. Um, so I had to let that go. And it was fun while I did it. Yeah. And I yeah. learned a lot, you know, I learned an awful lot. And I learned an awful lot about music uh, through working with people and listening to music. And um, it gave me a different kind of comprehension uh, that I didn't have before. Coming from Scotland, were you at all interested in that postcard stuff? Or did that did that stuff completely not connect with you at all? That sort of like the orange juice, Joseph K stuff. Did that make any impression on you at all as a, as a yes. young man? Absolutely. It did. I still listen to Joseph K a lot. Um, yeah, Joseph K were one of my favorite bands. And I loved Orange Juice. I mean, they were sort of like, you know, Edinburgh versus Glasgow. Somebody once said, everybody in Edinburgh wants to be an artist. Everyone in Glasgow wants to be a pop star. Um, so you have Orange Juice who 
you know, they did an Al Green cover and stuff like that. And then Joseph K were just like full on. Um, they were a very powerful presence. But uh, that first Orange Juice album, uh, I just love that record so much. And I have, I think I have everything Joseph K ever did. <laughs> they were great. Yeah, they were a fantastic band. And I love Paul Haig's voice so much. Yeah, yeah. So, what about someone like Roddy Frame? Did he, did his stuff do anything for you early on? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I, you know, I enjoyed Oblivious and they were definitely one of these bands that were uh, carried along on the wave of that Scottish sound that was happening in the very early 80s. Uh, the Bluebells, bands like that. Uh, um, but I, I came to like uh, uh, that Aztec camera a lot later on. And, um, you know, here's the thing, like being in a band in Edinburgh at that time, every band was really snobby. Really? <laughs> very dismissive. Of course, we're complete young hotheads and just smarmy and like one-upmanship and bitching and everything like that. Um and I, you know, I, there were a lot of bands and there were a lot of bands that we just fucking hated. Like there was a lot of pop bands that came out about the mid eighties, like uh, Wet, Wet, Wet and um, bands, Hipsway, bands like that. And we were just like, oh, oh, you know, and everyone was in a fight to get signed to a major label, you know, and nobody liked our band, the Finney Tribe. Um I think our only fan was Shirley Manson. <laughs> and uh, she she still swears by us today. But uh, yeah, it was very backstabby and everything like that. But uh, in retrospect, the bands that I loved from Scotland were, first of all, the un, the, the, the uncelebrated band, The Visitors, uh, were probably the cream of the crop for me. They had a few singles out, a few John Peel sessions, and they were just amazing and there was another band from edinburgh called explode your heart same thing they didn't even put a record out uh but one of the most one of the most incredible bands uh to see live and then there was joseph k the fire engines oh the fire engines did you ever hear them i love them yeah oh man what a great band yeah yeah um, the Visitors, I don't know, and Explode My Heart, I don't know, but a huge Fire Engines fan, huge Joseph K fan. Um, what happens to a band like Explode My Heart that they they never put a record out? Yeah, Explode Your Heart didn't put a record out. And uh, they made a few demos and uh, they, they played live regularly. And um, they had a sound that was really, it was very funky but very um, dark on top of it. Jazzy as well in a, in a more sort of almost uh, Albert Eiler kind of way, sort of a free jazz uh, meets this almost funk percussion. Um, very hard to describe, but utterly unique. And vocals kind of like early a certain ratio, just almost droney and in oh. the back. And their singer actually ended up joining the Finney tribe we, when when Explode Your Heart uh, broke up, 
which for oh, us okay. was 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 because they were like explode your heart were like our big brothers and like he's gonna join our band <laughs> yeah is he, still is he still around? With all these guys yeah I'm, I'm still friends with all these guys i'm gonna tell them to listen to this they'll get a kick out of it <laughs> well you know i i only asked because i mean i the show was really focused on like what's happening right now and i only yeah. dip into the past chris because i was wondering being from scotland all that music was happening at that time. And then you took this kind of ferocious right turn, <laughs> right? Yeah. And yeah. your music sounds nothing like that. And I just, I've always been impressed with the fact that you seem to have really known your musical identity early on, you know, like you, you knew who you were. That's my, again, that's my perception. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it's that crossed with, um, being an avid music listener as well like i co collected i started buying records when i was like nine uh and you know the first records i bought were things like david bowie station to station and can soon over babaluma and uh i bought henry cow records and stuff like that we had one of the best used record shops in europe and uh, going in and buying LPs there. And there was all this stuff that I was just like, the cover looks cool. I'll buy an Amon Dull record. And so <laughs> sure. my, my formative years were listening to stuff that I didn't necessarily understand, but did make an impression on me. And there was a definite fusion between noise and rhythm, to put it in very sort of basic terms that appealed to me. So things like can had melody and extremely intense rhythm but they also fused that with this atonal thing as well and that really rubbed off on me and um about 1978 music took for me a really sharp turn into the atonal and i discovered bands like suicide and throb and gristle and the residents and chrome and uh, it really blew my mind and so from that point onwards i i was quite driven uh and i ended up being with ministry and the revolting cogs and it made total sense uh towards the mid 80s things like adrian sherwood sherwood the producer was doing a much grander version of what i'd been listening to he was using these incredible rhythms and the noise was loud it was a loud sound he was using and i mean i know it was a loud sound because he made himself deaf from it i mean he mixed records really loud and it shows it was so revolutionary to me at the time and so when i hooked up with ministry they were doing that kind of thing at the same studio so right. i was just in love with that sound at the time well that does kind of give me a through line as to how you how you became sort of formed musically yeah um but what's really interesting is you're one of the few people where i can listen to your music and i can't place it on a timeline like it doesn't sound like 1987 <laughs> <That's> great right <laughs> yeah Which, i mean I, th I think a lot of people do that but i and i'm fine with it but i don't <sighs> writing music for me is just this timeless sort of place that i go to i don't feel like i feel right now when i'm writing music I just go into this space and I'm there and then I come out and I barely remember what I'd done, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that, and that space is sort of in between time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
it doesn't it doesn't exist in any time I know. <laughs> right. It's wonderful. It's a great feeling. Well, and that and that's why the records sound don't like you, they also sound like they're sort of, you know, like I said, can't be fixed on any kind of um, point in time. And do you still feel an attraction to the noise? Like does does noise do do sort of um, sort of noisy textures? Does that stuff still interest you the way it did? Or, or yeah, you... yeah. If the record calls for it, sure. And I think that I've had such I've given myself such an education in it. Uh, and I do enjoy it. Um, and my palette is, you know, open. Yeah, whatever whatever the music needs, I, I will use. Um, and I get super excited about these sort of uh, revelations that one might have when you're writing. Like when I was doing the new album, a lot of this stuff was, I would play guitar and sing and then maybe do a couple of tiny overdubs and then know to say, oh, leave it alone. Uh, or know when to add a layer of noise underneath, but just mix it so you can barely hear it, you know? Mm. It, it's it's quite, a, I think it's something that comes with age. You've worked with so many colors before, it's time to apply what you've learned to now uh, and maybe shape it a little bit more. When I was younger, you can imagine like the sort of bombastic idea of things like the revolting cocks and ministry was trying to get the loudest sounds possible in this environment, whether it meant breaking your gear or not. It was over the top. And now it's a, a sort of using what you learned then and maybe trying to integrate it into something different. It's all it's all patterns. It's all um a progression for me you know yeah because the the like pig face or revolting cocks there was something really kind of um feral yeah about, about that stuff yeah um, right and that sort of that sort of wild feral rawness yeah. gave way to something more more refined but certainly yeah. not tame right right i mean i still one of my biggest inspirations now in my my middle age is I listen to a lot of live Stooges records. <laughs> like to me, I I at the heart of much of what I do is pure rock and roll. Um, and I mean that not in terms of Chuck Berry or anything like that. I mean like Iggy Pop 1973 throwing himself around some stage in Baltimore, you know, it, it's it's the most feral raw energy you can get. And it's kind of like, I'll put it on and it's like having a Red Bull or something like that. It's like, yeah, I still feel it. It's visceral, but that still goes into, that energy still goes into what I do now. Um, not, I don't sit in my basement and cut myself up with, you know, or anything like that. Right. But that, that energy is there. And I think that at my age, I really have begun to pay way more attention to uh the uh the essence of 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 rock music and the essence like almost going beyond the band and the people who did it and trying to get into their souls which is you know one of the reasons i did the nico album because i found it fascinating to burrow into someone else's soul and try and feel that for a bit 
when you do that, and I've done that before where I, I went years ago, I got really obsessed with the Andy Kaufman. And uh-huh. I just yeah. started reading everything I could in all the most obscure places I could find to kind of put together my own composite of, of who yeah. it was and, and the story. But it, but it's it's hard to reenter the real world when you have particularly burrowish days. It's yeah. hard to it's hard to come back into the light. Did you find the transition was difficult? Or, or yeah, I did. Okay? It did. I found it very difficult because I found that. Uh, I liked being in that world a lot more. And it was me entering Nico, for example, and being in that space for a while. And I still knew it was me, but to come out of that rock myth back into the real world was just boring. I wanted to stay there, you know? Yeah. I liked where it was. And I was very sad when I was done writing the record. And I knew I was finished writing because I know when I'm done with the project. It's like this is the last day. You 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 gotta put your pen down and you've recorded it and there's nothing more you can add to it. Um so yeah, it was it was sad because I I had this vicarious feeling for for almost a year when I was writing and recording it. That was and everything is done in my basement. So I came down and was like, oh, it's time to go there again. You know, right, right. Had you always was she always in, on your radar in terms of her as an artist? Were you always fascinated with her? Yeah, um, probably since uh, 1980. I was like 14 or 15. And uh, I had the Velvet Underground's first album. I remember the day I bought it. It was like a late 70s reissue. And um, I loved it. It was funny because leading up to that, I'd never never heard them before. I hadn't studied them before, but I'd listened to Lou Reed and like I'd bought Sally Can't Dance when I was like 13. And I thought it was just shit. I was like, this isn't punk at all, because all I'd read in these fanzines was Godfather Punk Lou Reed. Like, how? How is this? It sounds like blood, sweat and tears. I think differently about that record now. I love it. But uh, at 14, it was not what I wanted. So when I got the Velvet Underground album, that was, uh, you know, as as for most people, it was a game changer. And um, the the beauty of how they mixed and edited together this dissonance and pastoral beauty was just really eye opening for me. And um, then about I think it was the same year I visited uh Chris Carter and Cozy Fanny Tutti uh, from Throbbing Gristle when I was really, really young. And I told Cozy that I was listening to Velvet Underground. I said, have you ever heard Nico? And she put on Desert Shore for me. And it, it was just, I didn't, obviously, nobody's ever heard anything like that. There's no record like Desert Shore. Um, so coincidentally, then the next year in 81, Nico played. And uh, she played in Edinburgh, the nightclub. And if you see the cover of my album has a photo of her playing a harmonium. Well, that was taken at that show I was at when I was 15 years old. And I found this thing on Flickr 
and I contacted the uh, photographer and it happened to be an old friend of mine. And I said, can I use that for an album cover? And he's like, sure. And it makes sense because he's like my age and we love the same music, but I didn't know him at that time. So finding that picture of her and I met her that night, I, I, I actually got to talk to her for a second. So that was really a big thing for me at 15. It's like, you're Nico, <laughs> you know? Yeah. He was just like stoned and like she touched my cheek and signed my jacket and went off, you know, but it was a big deal for me. So she, she lived was... in Edinburgh for a while. She did? She did. She lived in Edinburgh. Talking of Edinburgh bands, she used to date the lead singer of the band The Scars, um, who are a great band if you ever get to hear them. And she lived uh, in a, an apartment uh, on this street that's maybe two apartment blocks long. It's just a very short street. So me and my friends used to stand at the end of the street and wait for her to come out, but she never did. <laughs> it's I mean, it's really amazing that you saw her so young um, because that could have easily been missed. I mean, you got really lucky yeah. that she was there. Yeah. yeah. Well, she hadn't played for a while. Right. I mean, I think to me, it was like, first of all, at that time, her record drama of Exile had just come out. And that was her first record, her first new record since 1974. So it'd been this like six year gap. And uh, so it was really exciting that she had a new album coming out. And um she played at the Edinburgh Music Festival. Uh, you know, there was a bunch of bands playing. I think Bauhaus played that week too at the same club. And it was their first turn. But she, as far as I knew, she hadn't been touring. I mean, she probably had, but not. she'd not been to Scotland for either. She'd never been to Scotland to play or it was her first time in decades. How was the show? It was amazing to me. She played... Um, by herself with the harmonium first and she did the end and everything like that and then uh the band the cuban heels came on and they were her backing band and they played like i'm waiting for the man and stuff off her new record at that time and heroes and stuff like that uh um so yeah for me it was it was and you know she looked so bored doing it. You know, she's just like drinking beer and smoking the whole time. But it, for me, it was really amazing. She did not look like, you know, uh, the blonde Fellini lady or whatever, you know. She looked very different, but she was still incredibly beautiful. She pulled a wire like the strings of a lyre. Smooth as a pendulum, a swinging through fire. New York was filthy, but Berlin had been devastated. She fled the ocean to survive the abyss. Man in her corner was as much of a foreigner. He got the shyness and he got the intrigue. I'll make you famous if you work in my factory. The silver linings on Union Square West. Between the cuts and the editing floor She walked like Dietrich through the factory door Between the pills and the viola screech The sense of solace always out of reach And now uh, uh. 
with her lovers in tandem She crossed the Hudson on her Aryan wings She took the light on the stage of the future The room was freezing but she wanted to sing New York was complex but she swan with the underground Never austere, she is just painfully shy Soaked up the language of the shadows of Brooklyn German angel in the factory sky Between the cuts and the editing floor She walked like Dietrich through the factory door Between the pills and the viola screech The sense of solace out of, out of reach Oh now Oh now Do it again It was a very tragic life that she yeah, had, and I didn't was. know the biographical information that you that you um, have about what happened to her at fifteen, the sexual assault. Yeah. I didn't know about that. Yeah, I didn't know it either until I read. Well, I I read uh, this this book, uh, "You're Beautiful and You're Alone," by Jennifer Otter Bickerdick, who does the sleeve notes for my new album. I had finished recording Nico's songs and then I read this book. It came out last year and I read that and I was like, I've got to write more. I've got to write her story in an album. And yeah, I'd, I'd seen it being alluded to before. Um, but a lot of people think she was lying. A lot of people said she had a very interesting relationship with the truth about stuff. But I say, you know, here's this girl from living in rubble in Berlin and the Russian soldiers and the American soldiers were treating the Germans so horribly at that time, the civilians, um, you know, uh, I, I tend to, you know, I tend to believe her. Uh, and there was this book that came out a while back called the lives and lies of an icon, uh, by Richard Witts, which kind of like by its title, suggested that she lied all the time um and maybe she did but a lot of famous people do you know they they bend truths to suit their story at that time um but you know she was so so damaged i mean she was so traumatized and you look at how she ended up she was not only there's this strange parallel between being a complete heroin addict and also when she could making the most radical music it was so like the fact that she got signed to Electra and did the marble index is just one of the darkest records at the time 1968 when people were looking for John Sebastian or you know uh, the 1910 Fruit Gum Company outcomes this. Like her and Tim Buckley were kind of like uh, on a on a similar plane in a way. And that they got to do that was just amazing. But that record still to me says a lot. Look, if you're doing this kind of music, 
you're coming from a very uh, dark place, you know, uh, you're not happy. And to me, it's really obvious that that she was so broken. And then after all that, with the sexual assault, assault and everything like that, she became a really successful model. Then she had a kid with someone who absolutely denied paternity. And this guy, Alan Delon, he, she was absolutely in love with him. And, you know, he also happened to be one of the most famous French actors, and he just flat out denied that it was his kid. And uh, it was awful for her. She had a terrible life. Yeah, you can almost understand why somebody would go through life necessary I should say narcoticizing themselves like, like sort of like you know smoking drinking yeah just to, just to sort of forget the tragic um elements of their life you totally get yeah. it yeah of course you do yeah and you know the irony is that at the end of her life she was she had an accident she died but she was on the path to recovery mm. and one of the things that just pisses me off so much is that, you know, she could have been around being, she could have made tons of great records and collaborated more with John Cale into the 90s or whatever, you know, who knows? It's a real, if you follow her timeline and on my album, I stick to the timeline really, uh, I adhere pretty closely, but the one of the last songs she did is uh the last song on the album and it's called uh hanging gardens and it was from i don't know if there's a studio version it's actually on a live album from her last live concert it's mind-blowing it's such a brilliant song and you just think if only she could have done a whole album of this stuff it would have been just it would have been just such a knockout but yeah, she did anesthetize herself. And I do, I totally get it. But at the same time, it totally jeopardized. I mean, it just didn't jeopardize. It just, it killed so much of her career. I know from my own experiences in, in ministry uh, that not me particularly at all, but uh for example, Al would cancel gigs if he knew there wasn't a connect, at, you know, that he could buy from, you know, and just, we just had to go along with it. It's just what happened. If you're a junkie, you need to know where your connection is. Sure. So yeah. if she, if that was at risk, she wouldn't do it. You're, that is a greater entity than anything else you might be doing. And it's so sad. I had a friend who got on, he was partying with ministry in uh, Massachusetts and he woke up three days later in a different state, like on a, on the butt, like just a crazy story, but he, but, but the, the hedonism of the time, you must've looked around and thought to yourself, like, am I going to survive this? I mean, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, well, you know, uh, at the time when I was out of my head, I didn't think about survival at all because it was too high. But uh, I knew when to quit, and uh, I I walked away from that situation. I mean, it could have gone a very different way, but I really genuinely was so much more interested in the creativity uh, of my path that I it was easy for me to see 
what a fake suit the rock star thing was and how empty it was. And it's funny because the myth of rock is something that just absolutely I adore. And so as a kid, when I looked at people like Johnny Thunders and stuff like that, and just thought he is rock and roll embodied. And he was, but was he happy? No, he was some miserable fuck. And, you know, nothing made him happy. And uh, it's the same, you know, it's the same for all these people. Nothing interesting happens with drugs. And I learned really early that I can't be under the influence of anything and write. It just doesn't work for me. It's just like, just party <laughs> get you know get a get your jollies out and you got to go to work um it's funny i saw an interesting interview recently um from a few years ago with john kale and uh he was talking about lou reed and he was very sad that lou reed had died and i didn't know this but lou reed started drinking again uh in later life and john kale was saying like why did he start drinking and he made a really good point he said when we were doing something like Songs for Drella, the work was the fun. We had so much fun making that record. And if you do anything else, you're not going to have that much fun. And I know that from, for example, my collaboration with Bill Rieflin. Uh, when we worked together, it was just, it was playtime you know we needed nothing and anything else would have slowed us down so it was just like coffee and apples and uh (laughs) do the work and see how far you could get and uh you know when you're done working for the day open the bottle of wine or whatever but kale really it was a good point that he made if you're doing it you can have a lot of fun if you just open yourself to it and realize I I don't take it for granted that I have this little studio here and I can come down and do anything I want. You know, what's brilliant, you know, it's like having a toy box. <laughs> right, right. And then there's some people who can only write when they use some kind of drug or alcohol. Yeah. Or at least maybe, maybe they think that that's true. Yeah. Um, but we we've seen like, I've mentioned it before, but I think Kerouac is a good example of somebody who thought that he was unlocking something when he was writing by by doing speed or whatever. Yeah. I think if you look at a lot of his work, I think a lot of it is sort of a mess after yeah. a while. Yeah, I mean, I understand it. And I mean, I understand the things that I've written when I'm tripping or something when I was yeah. a kid. And at the time thinking that this is it, it's the key to the universe. And then you look at it the next morning and it's like, insane scribble right Uh, and i don't i don't doubt that it works for some people maybe it does it just does not work for me uh and i know that there's some drugs that are just going to like like bam you know you're not doing anything you're you're having a blackout is what you're having (laughs) was was there always a degree of self-preservation running through you yeah absolutely yeah yeah, I'm very keen on it. <laughs> and yeah. I've managed to, you know, I, uh, I've managed to go through a lot of, you know, eras of destitution. Um, but I never, 
I never looked at things as being a downward spiral or a downward trajectory. I always thought of it as a temporary space and I'd work to get out of that space. And I always did. And that's great, you know, and I, I always will be that way. Um, you know, and I think that I'm settled enough now. But in later life, I, I think, you know, I think about becoming ill or something like that and how, how that's what that's my fear now my fear is not doing something awful on tour or like losing everything that way it's just keeping my health really and making sure that i'm on task <laughs> yeah that's a that's a good point though because i when i was 19 or 20 and i looked at al jorgensen i thought he looked like he was nine feet tall and and made of muscle i just thought of him as a really big godlike dark entity like a force yeah um but but i look at him recently and and i you know he looks like an older guy who um you know who is not as as not he looks kind of frail to me in the sense that i feel like maybe the self-preservation i mean he seems like a lovely guy but um i wonder sometimes if people don't think about their mortality and they when they look eight feet tall, they might feel eight feet tall yeah. too. And that might be dangerous. Yeah. 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 No, you're right. You're right. You know, it's, you know, the, 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 the fact that people in bands are generally, they start young uh, and you do feel kind of immortal at that point. Um, and you've got to, you got to find, you've got to find your own limitations uh, as you, as you move on. And hopefully that I mean, it's like what we were talking about at the beginning of the uh, interview uh, about not having interest in going back and doing nostalgic things. Yeah, I have no I mean, when I was doing these songs, I mean, I was out of my head and now I'm not. And, you know, it just it is acting. It is pantomime. It is parody. And that's fine. Uh, but just for a short i mean you can only do that for so long when it just becomes a little bit sad <laughs> right right it, it, it's not going to end well if you're not careful no i mean i love the bands that the, like the damned are still together and are touring but you know they're they're different you know they're they're different they've always looked like the damned <laughs> yeah and i don't think of them as old men or anything like that i just think they're a fucking great rock band and uh you know i see myself in the revolting cocks because i have to look at it in relation to you know the 20 albums i've made since the revolting cocks and like i we're all moving on you know everybody in the band is up to other stuff so right there's well, there's no time for it. That's the brilliance of a band that I never really liked, but I, but a band like Kiss, right? Brilliant about them is that they could hide behind the makeup. Yeah, yeah, I know. The costume. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. I always wondered why, when the drummer guy left or they threw him out, they just didn't get another guy and put the same makeup on <laughs> and not tell anyone. <laughs> yeah, because you know what, Chris? You know who would have known? Nobody. Nobody. Not in no. those days. No. <laughs> no, no, no way. Um, digging through Nico's life and coming up with what you did. I mean, you and I are on the same page about the past, but you had to go into the past, obviously, to to research her. Yeah. Um, were you were there, was there any kind of discovery for you when you came out of it? Of course, you were sad it was over. But did you have any kind of I mean, enlightenment might be too strong of a word, but I think you know what I mean. Yeah. 
Um, I think in a sense it was uh, putting together the pieces of the puzzle I knew already uh, from listening to her music and reading what I had read, read about her. Um, I think I walked away with a lot more empathy for her than I did in the beginning. And I always had a lot of empathy for her, but I mean, the one of the biggest takeaways for me was, like I mentioned, what could have been, like she was on the right track to do something mind-blowing in my, in my opinion. Um, I think that I've listened to these records so much over the last year, and they're the same records I've listened to since I was a kid, but I, I, I dug deeper and deeper. I think I hear a more emphasized um, uniqueness about her that is, and I'm using the word you use, timeless. Um, it could almost be medieval in a sense, mm. you know, the drone and everything like that. But I feel absolutely sure that she was born that way. She was not contriving to do anything. She bought that harmonium because Jim Morrison told her to, because she said, I can't play an instrument. She, he said, buy harmonium. They're great, you know. <laughs> and that opened her up. It was the perfect foil for her voice. It was the perfect instrument for her. And when you hear the harmonium, you think, Nico. Um, but also it's an instrument that was you know, it came from a religious background originally, and it doesn't sound dissimilar to uh, the, uh, what you call the hurdy-gurdy from the Middle Ages as a drone, you know. And um, I only put two and two together later on, but there was this link with her music and the music to me, it sounded like uh, of uh, the uh, composer Hildegard von Bingen. I don't know if you've heard of her or not. She no. was uh, she was a nun and she was a mystic and she wrote this incredible music, incredible music for voice and uh, strings. Oh boy, uh, I'm going to say she was around in the 1500s, maybe. Oh. You know what? She also, I, I actually, I teach college and I actually taught one of her, I think she wrote a book. Yes, she did. Yeah, yeah. I know exactly. I didn't know that was her full name. I, we just called it Hilda. I, I absolutely know her work. Okay. Because um, that would have been Renaissance, right? Or that would have been, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember teaching, I taught um, a few pieces from her book. I didn't know she wrote music too. Oh my God, her music's incredible. She was really uh, a unique woman. Wow. And German as well. And yeah. so there was this, uh, I discovered through my own writing, more than reading, when I was putting the pieces of the puzzle together, I heard that in her music and I heard it because I'd been playing a harmonium, this thing right here. And uh, so in, I actually refer in one of the songs, uh, there's a song called 80s Beat Boys, and I refer to Goths and Vandals, who are these two ancient German tribes, uh, the Goths and the Vandals. Um, and uh, 
there's a sort of joke in there because it, she is kind of the queen of the goths as in the fashion you know uh but the goths were actually a tribe and uh i wondered if she was maybe descended from that tribe somehow we won't we won't ever know she made up a lot of stories about her parents or of her father who wasn't present um so yeah i think walking away with enlightenment is 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 fair to say because by putting these pieces of the puzzle together myself something new came out of that for me some new understanding of it really and it was a, again a timeless sound that that she had yeah you're right you're right about that she could have almost been like a medieval chanteuse of some kind yeah i know i know yeah yeah well this is a very shallow perception but please forgive it um she her biggest curse was also being so beautiful yeah um no right because people like you even suggest, like you even saw that she looked different. Like when you saw her, she already was like not the blonde, whatever, yeah. but still beautiful. Yeah. But I remember thinking like someone like Nico, had she lived to be 80, would have been like Leonard Cohen level fascinating, if not yeah. more. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it almost, I don't know if people would have permitted that without judging her based on her beauty because she was so yeah. ridiculously beautiful. Yeah, yeah, um, it, it was it was absurd. Um, yeah, I, I, it, it was, uh, it, she hated it as well. She didn't like it. She, yeah. she very quickly tried to make herself ugly, um, you know, by dyeing her hair first and then like, you know, not giving a shit about her weight or anything like that and drinking as much beer as she could, um, she really, really was self-destructive like that. It's interesting because um, I don't know if you know this or not, but she in the early 70s moved to France and she became lovers with the French filmmaker Philippe Garel. And uh, he made uh, a film called The Interior Scar, uh, La Cicatrice Interieure, which is the front cover of Desert Shorts is still from that film. Um, he is, he's still around, he's still making films, but he was the son of an incredibly famous French actor and he bought his son an apartment and Nico and he moved into the apartment. And this was on, there's a song about it on the album, it's called uh, The Black Rooms of Richelieu. So it was on Rue de Richelieu uh in paris and the first thing he did was paint him and nico painted every wall black this was a beautiful street this was a fucking giant apartment in paris and this guy was so insanely existential he painted everything black so french and uh Very. ripped ripped out the stove <clears throat> there was no electricity and there was nothing. It was like he had to have an ascetic life. And Nico went along with it. So in terms of like her changing her beauty, she really went for it. Like to the point of living in a black room for years and years. And completely impoverished heroin addict living off cigarettes and heroin. Um, and they would go out at night 
and uh, walk around. Um, so she really kicked that whole thing to the curb. And I don't know how she felt about it later in life, but uh, it, it, she aggressively fought it and I aggressively fought it like an artist, uh, I'd say, by... I mean, it wasn't her idea to paint the apartment black, but she lived there and she helped right. paint it, you know? Right, right. Co-conspirator. I mean... Yeah, and it seemed like the right thing to do at the time to her. Yeah. You know? I mean, the thing is, is like her... She's one of those people that that doesn't look like her voice, right? Like that's that right. was sort of the great the great trick where she'd be up there and you'd expect something that was not that. So there was a, there was something dark bubbling inside of her. And I think she understood how silly beauty was, or at least the value that yeah. is placed on it. Yeah. She wanted to be an artist. And I right. mean, you know, if you read Jennifer's book, you will see these snippets of conversations from people she interviewed who knew her where she, she was really very smart and very intuitive. Uh, and, um, you know, picked up on things and made, made this art that was so completely unique. Um, you know, when she did Chelsea girl, uh, she didn't like it, you know, very much because they added flutes and strings to it. She didn't want that. And then you listen to certain songs on that record, like it was a pleasure then, which is far more of a drone. It's far more John Cale uh, than it is Jackson Brown. Um, mm. And uh, there was there was hints there of where where we're going or where potentially it could lead. And it did. It, it, when the when the Marvel Index came out, it was like, you know, it was so different. And one of the things that I really uh, connected with with her was that she had to live down the Velvet Underground. And in a sense, I've because they've gone so far away from Ministry and the Revolting Cocks, except when the paycheck's good. <laughs> I've had to live that down a little bit, you know, and I've had to like say yeah well i have 20 other records that are you know what i'm doing now or whatever uh you know i've not been doing this and she said in an interview like i sang three songs with them you know i i have other records you know i have other things going on you know um have you seen nico 1988 no i have not it's quite good, although it's the story is not completely accurate, but it's, it's sort of based around the year before she died. Um, but it opens with this uh, interview she did with Piccadilly Radio in Manchester, and the interviewer on the radio asks, introduces her as Lou Reed's own femme fatale, and she just shuts it down immediately. She's like, no, that's not me. <laughs> <laughs> Was she in? Was she still in touch, or did she have a friendship with Lou Reed in the last fifteen years of her life, or no? I don't know. I mean, I know from the book that uh, he visited with her a couple of times, maybe in the eighties. Uh, it's very tangential, though. I, 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 I don't know. Dale, yes, uh, but 
Reed, no. In fact, there's there's a couple of songs on the album which are from Lou Reed's perspective. One from the mid seventies, where he was just so awful to her, like just so unforgivably mean to her. And then another song I wrote, which was kind of well, it was fictional, of his getting straight and her staying stoned in like he got straight what in 1980 mm-hmm. uh, around the time of the blue mask and uh she remained high and it's kind of like about that disconnect between him and her uh from his point of view were you in on metal machine music or did that not do anything for you i love that record i listened to it the other day did you yeah i listened to it the other day and uh I listen to it in my car. <laughs> I love if I have to go somewhere at night. I love listening to that record in the car at night. Mm. It's just wonderful. But I keep hearing these crazy melodies that are just almost like you hear it on side one and then you hear it on side four and it's sped up. And I, it's one of these records that just you have to work to listen to. It's like you, it's a participatory record. You can't just put it on. You have to listen to it and your mind will tell you what it's doing. Yeah, I love that record. Listening to it in the car, you might think something is going wrong with your transmission at one point. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) Totally, totally. Uh What is the, um, you know, this project must have taken a good chunk of your, of the last bit of your life for the last year or two or whatever, right? Yeah. So what is your current creative endeavor at this point uh i'm not doing anything actually i'm just working on this this is done and i'm not uh i'm taking a break from creativity because i've learned and believe me since i finished the record i've had a million ideas for a great new record but i know myself well enough to just say just wait it'll 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 come i know when i'm going to create and uh something wonderful will happen and I'll start doing it again. So I'm busy learning the songs I wrote and wondering how I wrote them. And it's funny because I don't, when I get to that, I I take terrible notes. I have, you know, this is like my songwriting. It's just, wow. You know, so I have three drawers of paper here. So when it gets time to learn the songs, because when I'm writing it, there's no future. It's the now and it's fast. And I write it and I stuff it in an envelope or I leave it here. And so now I'm just collating all these bits of paper and trying to make sense of them. It's like uh, like the Dead Sea Scrolls or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but when you're taking a break from creativity, I can't see you as a guy who just sits back and watches football. Do you still come oh. to the bunker, right? Do you come to the bunker and, and just sort of hang out a little bit? I'll, I'll play. I love playing and I'll, I'll book some gigs and stuff like that, you know, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll rehearse with, I, I've been rehearsing with some friends to play some of this music live, but also it's a good time for me to catch up on reading. And usually reading a book is what will, push me on to the next thing <laughs> you know I'll, I'll read something or uh um it'll inspire me and uh, i'll move on but i don't have an awful lot of free time um 
you know, but I, I will come down here and I've got I've got a lovely little setup with a few guitars and stuff like that. And I'll just play away and enjoy myself that way. But no, I don't watch football. <laughs> no, no, I didn't think so. But you, but you have a family and you have a job I and you do, have yeah. a life and you have to, yeah, I do. right? You're busy. Yeah, I am. I am. Yeah. yeah. Um, I really appreciate this conversation, Chris. I've wanted to talk to you, you know, for 30 years and I'm glad oh, we wow. finally did. Fantastic. It's been really enjoyable. Thank you. Well, there you go. Chris Connolly, really nice guy. I enjoyed that very much. Go to Chris Connolly's website, chrisconnolly.com. Two N's, two L's. We'll get you there. That's right. Connolly is spelled C-O-N-N-E-L-L-E-Y. Chrisconnolly.com. Go to his website. Pick up his new album. You will not be sorry. This is a very intense listen. And it seems appropriate that while I'm telling you that, there's a guy outside the studio with a chainsaw. I think he's, what's he doing? He's well, he's fashioning something out of wood, but I figure the industrial appellation of Chris Connolly goes perfectly with the sound of a chainsaw outside the window. Very appropriate. Uh, the album is masterfully done. It's beautiful. It's haunting. It's mesmerizing. And uh, it is pretty stunning work. AlexGreenOnline.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me. There is a new book that will be coming out in May. May 1st. My novel, The Adventure Teen All-Stars, will be hitting the streets. Will the streets hit back? Well, we'll find out. I'll be talking about it nonstop in the coming months, so get ready. You can follow me on Twitter, at Ember's Editor. You can follow me on Instagram, at Ember's Podcast. Feel free to email me, editor, at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. And please check out BombshellRadio.com to find out what makes our radio station tick. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms, Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate, and review, and tell every single person in your life about our show. We would appreciate it. Well, the sounds of the chainsaw are still going, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to drown them out with the fabulous music of Chris Connolly. This is a really great song. It's the one we opened the show with. Here's a longer listen to, admittedly, my favorite song on the album. And it's hard to pick favorites, by the way. They're all so good. The Last Mile. Enjoy it, and I'll see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio. Rivers will be flowing So why not let that flow People were made for showing So why not let that show Show a little laughter Mindset.
Yeah.